everybody, and welcome back to another Ruby Rogues podcast. Um, this week on our panel, we have four awesome Ruby developers. Uh, first, our guest rogue, uh, we have Brian Ford. Brian, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hey, everybody, this is Brian. Uh, let's see. I work on Rubinius uh, for Engineer. That's probably the, the best way to tell you who I am. I've been working on that project almost since I've been, uh, announced it back in December, or maybe November 2006. I've been working on it since December of 2006. That's awesome. I know a lot of people who use Rubinius are pretty happy with it, so that's, that's terrific. That's, that's awesome to hear. Yep. We also have James Edward Gray. I'm going to try editing this podcast since that's been the uh, popular request. So uh, you guys can give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down on how it goes. Yeah, and if somebody wants to sponsor this podcast, then maybe we could just hire somebody to do that. But yeah, I'm lazy, so I don't. <laughs> and we also have Josh Susser. Hey, everybody. Um, this is I'm Dr. Nick. Uh, um, good morning. Uh, we're trying a new, a new time recording this podcast, so I hope we're all uh, alert and, um, and chatty. <laughs> anyway, I, anyway, I'm calling in from San Francisco, uh, and the thing that's occupying my attention a lot these days is uh, Golden Gate Ruby Conference, which is just coming up in a couple weeks now. So it's driving me crazy, but in a good way. That's exciting stuff. And I'm Charles Max Wood. Um, I am the host of the Teach Me to Code and uh, the Rails Coach podcasts, and I'm doing a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, you can find most of that at teachmetocode.com. And uh, right now I'm in Boulder, so yeah, so it's gonna it might sound a little bit different, but that's because I'm sitting in a hotel room talking into my laptop. So anyway, so let's get started. Um, Josh, you picked the topic this week, so I'll let you go ahead and introduce it. Um, okay, so the the topic this week is what's wrong with Ruby, uh, and uh, the, uh, Josh, the way I think of this is Josh. Yep. Can, can we get a definition of Ruby? <laughs> Ruby is a silicate crystalline gemstone. No, the, the, uh, okay, so the, uh, <laughs> that was about four too many syllables for my tired mind. I was just sure he was going to make me define wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'll do that. I'll define what. Then <laughs> the rest of it all depends on okay, what your so definition of the word is. Is <laughs> oh, you went there. You you really went there. Which okay. left for an exercise. So, so what's wrong with Ruby? <laughs> oh, excuse me. Now I see what starting the the recording earlier in the day has done to us. <laughs> <laughs> We don't have any pre-show to, to, to get all this out of our system first. Okay, the, so what's wrong with Ruby? And you know, Ruby isn't perfect. No programming language is, but um, I assume since we're on this podcast, it's just our favorite language that we're using. And uh, there's things wrong with it, that things that could be better, things that drive us crazy every now and then. And I think one of the things that experienced Rubyists learn is how to deal with those things and not let them make you crazy. So that's where I was coming from when I, when I thought of the topic. So Brian had kind of an interesting pre-question when we asked him to uh, join us for this episode. He, uh, he started quizzing us on what exactly Ruby means. So uh, Brian, you want to talk a little about that? Sure. Uh, so it's a great question. What is wrong with Ruby? I, I think that you know we see a lot of people write um, blog posts and talk about a variety of different things that I associate with Ruby. Um, and being a little bit of a, a math head, I, I really like definitions. So of course I was curious, what exactly do I mean by Ruby? And I look at Ruby as a, a fairly complex onion, the, the very core sort of language, which has syntax and the, the semantics, how you make a class, how you make a method, this sort of thing. But I deal with uh, a lot of stuff around that core every day working on Rubinius. I work on Ruby spec a great deal. So uh, that's sort of defining how the language works. But also, um, I write a ton of Ruby code in Rubinius. Our bytecode compiler is all in Ruby, for instance. And as I'm working on that, I'm I'm um, contrasting what I hear from people 
about uh, their experiences uh, engineering Ruby applications and Rails applications. And, uh, and then there's, you know, many things around Ruby, like the testing with either, you know, unit test or RSpec or Cucumber, and there's a fairly avid engineering community that looks at things like patterns and, and how to write better code. So I'm, I'm really interested in the question, and I actually have things that I could say are, in my opinion, wrong with Ruby, if, if we can go define wrong, at all those different levels. So it's a fascinating topic. So you're thinking kind of the levels being language, implementation, sounded like uh, maybe community or maybe just culture would be a better word, uh, and then the ecosystem in general. Absolutely. That's a really good way to summarize it. So, all right. So let's start picking on some things. Josh had a list generated, didn't you, Josh? So, so. I actually started going through a list of, you know, putting together a list of what I thought was, you know, problems with Ruby or things that were wrong, things that, that I didn't like. And I realized that a lot of them had to do with ambiguity. So uh, my, my favorite uh, awful quirk in the Ruby language in, in the syntax it, or the processing of the syntax, I'm not even sure, is that the, um, the assignment of a value to something that looks like it could be a local variable or a setter method, and and that's amb- ambiguous to the to the programmer, although not to the compiler. Right. So I will try to sum up how Ruby does that, and then Brian can correct me on everything I get wrong, since he knows much better than me. But I believe what Josh <laughs> is talking about is like if you say var equals. Um, the the way Ruby determines, or no, that wouldn't be the case because that would always be a local variable, wouldn't it? Yeah, var equals would always be a local variable. No, that's what you would think. <laughs> is there is there any case where it's not? I can't think of one. Well, if you're within the context of a model and you have, say, Atra Accessor set up, or Atra Writer, I think it is. I don't remember. But in that particular case, you would have to qualify it with self dot var equals. I believe the actual case is: say you have uh, some method and then space var. Okay, so that's that's an actual ambiguity. The second the var, um, if there's been a local variable assigned in the current scope, then it's the local variable. If there hasn't, it's the method called to the word var, I believe is the case. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty complicated, James. I, th- I think you, you have uh, two cases there. There is the one case where you're setting an identifier equal to something, and that's always going to look like a local variable to, uh, to Ruby. Uh, so if, if I say uh, name equals uh, Josh, then uh, and I have an adder setter on my class name. Uh, Ruby is going to interpret name equals as a local variable assignment, and you have to give it an explicit receiver in order to disambiguate that for Ruby. I mean, it's a decision that could have been made the other way. It could have always like looked up a method first, and maybe if that failed, said, oh, "Okay, I guess you want to set a local variable." But it's really something that trips people up. I I assisted uh, with a beginning programming for women class. We were covering some some Ruby stuff, and the first non-trivial piece of Ruby that they wrote was a before save filter to upcase the name, and everybody hit this very problem. So it's it's one of those things that lurks. I spent a full day uh, debugging when I didn't realize what was happening, and I couldn't understand why my initialize method was not setting these attributes. I had made some complex setters. So it's a very ambiguous part of Ruby. It's a, it's a, it's a big trap. And there's another one that's kind of similar to it, uh, James, that I think you were mentioning. And that's basically the, the ambiguity between an actual variable reference or a uh, method call that is, uh, in Ruby, it's called a V call. I think that's that, that stands for variable call. Because if I just say uh, name equals, and instead of a literal string like Josh, if I say name equals um, 
foo, and foo is an identifier. Foo could be a local variable, or it could be a method call with no receiver, uh, you know, nothing before the dot, and no arguments. And that case is ambiguous, and Ruby actually goes to a little more trouble to try to figure it out. It'll actually say, is there a local variable? If not, send a method uh, call to try to find that method somewhere hierarchy. So those two cases, they're a little bit different. They're both ambiguous. They easily trip people up. And I would agree with Josh, one of my least favorite parts of Ruby. The, the, cra the crazy thing about the, the thing you just mentioned is that the, at least the second case where you're doing you know, something equals foo, uh, that you can copy and paste out of one method and put it in another method in the same class. And it should, I think it will always consistently be the same as long as you don't have a foo variable in one or the other methods. But, it, but, the, but the other case where you're assigning to, a, to an identifier and that identifier can either be a local variable or a setter method, um, that will behave differently depending on whether, uh, on, the, on the rest of the context of the method. And, and the, the way that, that Ruby resolves that ambiguity of assignment is, is not based on whether you've done an assignment to a local variable in the method, but whether you've referred to that local variable in the method. So it, that, is, that is a good it, point, but I think you're actually yeah. confusing it with the second case. In the first case, when you have var equals, it is always an assignment to a local variable, I believe. But in this no, no, it, it's not. No, no, no. If you've referred to the um, the method before, then it will treat it as a setter method. I, I think. I mean, I mean, the fact that it's so confusing to people who've been doing Ruby for many years <laughs> is, is why I hate this. That's a good point. This is. Um, uh, if if we're working this hard to define it, so I, I've definitely been bit by this in the past, where I was you know assigning and then I, I forgot to put the self in there, so you end up assigning to a local variable that just gets thrown away, and then you keep trying to figure out why you're losing data somewhere. Um, I do want to say in our little chat window here, Brian's showing us uh, how to get Rubinius to decompile this stuff for you to show it show you how it sees it is in uh, X, X expressions, which is one of the awesome features of Rubinius. It's why I think Rubinius is the most transparent of all the virtual machines. You can feed it some code and pass the right command line switches, and it'll spit out basically a representation of how it sees that code. And because of that, you can see how Ruby resolves ambiguities like this. So I, I think it's very helpful. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that. Okay, so, so enough about this little little word. The, the, what I would say is that if you're doing an assignment, you know, a, a, a setter, assignment to a, a setter method within your code, if, if there's any question about what you're doing, you should prefix it with, you know, you should be explicit and say self.name equals. I right. Yeah, I think the self dot is the, the rule of thumb if you're using a setter method. If you want a local variable, use the name. If you want the setter, then, then put a self dot in front of it. So I was just going to say that, you know, this, this very interesting ambiguity in Ruby grammar, I mean, it's not this particular case with the setter is, is not really ambiguous to the grammar. The grammar just sees a local variable assignment. However, the, the, the ambiguity that we see as programmers in the code introduces some of the other things that I think are very interesting about Ruby and potentially something you could say is wrong with Ruby. And I just want to sort of tie that in that a lot of times how we are engineering our code, if we are making a complex setter, a setter is really something where inside the class we have access to the instance variable directly. That's in our scope and we can do it. We can, we can change its value directly. It's only when we start overriding uh, the the simple concept of setting an attribute inside of our class that we get into this case where we're calling a setter inside the class and we have this weird thing where we didn't put a receiver because no one writes self dot that that's that's implicit right if you don't have a receiver for a, a method call then it's going to be sent to self so um, I think that that 
sort of identify something where it's not just the language that's a problem, but it's uh, whether or not we're asking ourselves, why have I created this this uh, complex idea of wrapping a simple idea of setting an, an instance variable that I can do directly in my in my class, uh, and instead I've added a bunch of logic around that so now I'm I'm required to call the setter inside my class and then I run into the ambiguity that uh, Ruby sees a local variable assignment and I have to add self dot to tell Ruby exactly what I mean so I think that's that's the sort of next level outside of the, the onion I just want to like tie that in it's maybe not Ruby's fault maybe we're writing bad code that's tripping us up in this situation I, I don't think this is a Ruby thing. I think I remember this was a fairly significant topic of debate when I was working in small talk you know, 20 years ago that uh, you know do you, do you access an instance variable directly or do you wrap it up in getters and setters and talk to it that way? I, I think that that is a cleaner uh, that leads to cleaner code working through accessor methods even when you're within your own class. It makes for for uh, more malleable code. It's easier to refactor. If you decide, oh, well, the name is no longer just an instance variable. It's something that I am uh, composing out of some other, some other the, a first name and a last name string, for instance. Uh, then you, you have much more flexibility and you don't have to run around and hit your code all over the place if you change that. Um, sometimes that, that's a little yagni, uh, meaning uh, you, know, you ain't going to need that or you ain't going to need it, um, and and you're getting ahead of yourself, and you're putting in flexibility that that you're never going to take advantage of. But I, I think a lot of it, a lot of times, it is useful to do that. But, and then there, and then there's things like if you're if you're working an active record, you have to talk to those uh, those attributes as um, as through accessor methods because they aren't really instance variables. Right. And you want to get all the goodness that's there with like the dirty variables and stuff. Yeah. Well, well, they, right. they're just that's are, the, that's they're just the are, yeah. Well, there just are no instance variables there. That's not how active yeah. record works. So, but but the, but the nice thing is that if you have uh, if you have something that's an instance variable and then you turn it into an attribute, you don't have to run around and find all those places where you talk to the instance variable. You just change the the implementation of the method by replacing it with an attribute. Yeah, I think that's sometimes something we forget, like uh, we kind of get into the habit of just doing ATTR reader, you know, and and saying or or writer or whatever, and we have that, but then it's good to remember that sometimes you can, you know, when you need to, you can rip that out and put in the full method and allow yourself to do something like when you return sense, you know, because you always want to put sense in your database, you can switch it back to dollars and cents, which humans prefer to read, you know, or something like mm-hmm. that. So uh, I, I do think it's it's usually a handy level of abstraction, although if it's not going to be set externally or, or messed with externally, then I don't see anything wrong with accessing the instance variable directly. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with yeah. that. Okay, so 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 here, here's, a, here's something that I want to, I want people to talk to respond to, and that's that Ruby has this very, uh, you know, there are many ways to do things right philosophy. It's, it's fairly pearlish in that, in that respect. It's much more than, you know, Python has a, there's a one, way, one right way to do things approach. Ruby is very much all things to all people. And so you can do uh, blocks as do end, or you can put curly braces around them. And there's ampersand ampersand versus a and d. So there's a lot of these, uh, you know, pick your own way of doing it, and the which is great up to a point. But sometimes there's actually there's differences in how these things operate. So so map and collect are synonyms for the same method, but ampersand ampersand and a and d actually operate differently. So that. Uh, you know, yeah. Is that something that's bad about the language, or is it something that's great about the language? <laughs> I, I, it's interesting. I've, I, I have a, quite a few friends who I talk to that, um, that are Python developers, and so yeah, they go way into the Zen of Python, and and you know, there's only one right way to do any any given thing, and and you know, and so they they tout that as a virtue, but at the same time, I mean, I really like the flexibility that I get out of out of Ruby. I mean. 
can you imagine writing a block on one line, writing it out, you know, dot, map, uh, do, pipe, variable, pipe, semicolon, you know, something, semicolon, end. I mean, you know, the, the curly braces in that instance is very, very convenient. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think you with the and 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 the ampersand ampersand or whatever it it gets a little it's a little bit different because they actually do different things and so you kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis and uh, make sure that what you're using is what you want but uh, i think in most cases it's a good thing because it really just provides you flexibility because it's just an alias to something else i uh i came from Perl definitely so i i guess i side with that uh, community and and I learned using those uh, constructs. So, uh, for example, everybody does seem to be bothered by that ampersand ampersand versus a and d, and I really like it because that the difference basically the primary difference is uh, ampersand ampersand has a lower precedence than an equal sign, and uh, a and d or uh, sorry, maybe I should make that higher precedence than an equal sign, uh, meaning it binds more tightly. And uh, A and D has the, the lower precedence or binds more loosely. So if you have like var equals whatever A and D or A and D or maybe we should use or in this case OR abort blah blah blah. So basically you can say something like assign this variable or if we can't let's just abort the script right now. Which is very useful in like scripting and stuff. Whereas if you use the or... And on the equal side, it tries to do the first thing, and if it can't, it ors the second thing, and that's what ends up getting assigned because it's uh, the difference in the equal sign. So I, right. I guess I, I did kind of learn using those tricks, and so they're very comfortable to me, but I can definitely understand um, where they, they make people uncomfortable because if you change, you can't just like do a search and replace through your code and replace... A and D with ampersand, ampersand, you may literally change the meaning of the code, uh, which, you know, is definitely problematic. And people argue which ones to use in that, you know, if conditionals and stuff like that should use the symbols or the words, which I I tend to use the words uh, just because I think they look better. uh, And I'm generally not using an equal sign in a conditional, at least not a single equal. Um, But uh, a lot of people disagree with me on that. I think I'm in the minority, but... uh, Anyways, I don't mind the choice, and I I always prefer to have multiple ways to express myself, but uh, I do understand why some people have that complaint. What about about aliases for things like map versus collect? Well, map is just right, and collect is just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love love the fact that that Ruby has aliases, actually. It's one of... Absolutely, one of my most favorite features. I have never been particularly confused by uh, by you know code using those different methods, and I found that it gives people a great great bit of freedom to to write code that makes a little more sense to them. And I think that's the the same thing with and uh, and ampersand ampersand. The code visually looks different and I only ever use ampersand ampersand if I am really explicitly wanting that higher precedence for something like assignment and the and is more like a, an expression in my mind and so I find that the code like flows more uh, readily as I'm reading through ampersand ampersand is more visually jarring and so I pay more attention and especially if I see adder and and equals something it's uh i have to think more deeply about that code this could be coming in initialized and if it's not then i want to change that behavior that sort of thing so i, I find yeah aliases and and the and the different uh you know the the block with braces and they're, they're used in different ways to actually structure code and not and not just the the architectural structuring, but actually lexically structuring code, where different symbols get next to each other. And I find it really, really helpful in, in writing more expressive code. I, I have a question about the aliasing of method names. Okay. Uh, so so we, have, we have map and collect. Right. And you know, so I, I go in and I, I, um, I override the implementation of collect in, 
or I or I put a novel implementation of collect in my uh, so I have I have a class I I include the enumerable module and then I override collect. Right. So you you wrote your code to call map on my object. What happens to my uh, my collect method? Yeah, oh, good in that, question. In that case, I believe your new override would not be used because my understanding of Ruby's aliasing is that it's actually a copy, basically, at the time of alias. Yeah, Brian, so, so you're, you're actually putting a new entry in the method table? You know, I'm actually looking at that right now. I'm, I'm, I'm always, <laughs> sorry, I'm always, I'm always uh, surprised by that. Yeah, um, let's find out, shall we? You guys pick the next topic and I'll come back and, and tell you what I find. <laughs> I do want to argue in favor of the aliasing. I think I can give an example where it's very helpful. Um, for example, I'm a, I'm a find guy, and I use find, and I believe that's the correct one. If you use detect, you're just wrong. So I uh, just want you to know that. However, but uh, if you're in active record, right, it needs find for its uh, uh, main thing. Maybe less so now where we tend to use the other methods, but in, in old active record, find was a very important method, and we still use it for like ID lookups, right? And the problem mm -hmm. is the way active record does its associations, it returns that association object in the middle, you know, when you call dot comments or whatever, it's actually an association object, and you can call class methods through it, right? So you can do dot comments dot find. Well, if you do that, you're going to get active records find. But what if I really wanted to load the comments and iterate through them using enumerable find? Well, you can actually do that. You just do dot comments dot detect, right? Because there's the alias there, because active record, you know, appropriated find, but I still have access to that other other method, that other way to get to Ruby. And of course, you could do that in other ways. You could alias it yourself at, at you know, load time before active record was loaded or something. But I'm just saying that having those choices means that even if active record stomps on to me what is an important method, I can still get to it. Right. You just yeah, have it definitely to, does. It costs you two more keystrokes, though. My goodness. Yeah, that's probably going to be slower as well, right? Because the longer identifier. No, so yeah, it actually <laughs> does make a copy of the of the method, um, which get you know gets kind of uh, complicated because you can undef, uh, you know, you could you can make an alias and then undef the other method so that Ruby can't look up in the uh, in the class hierarchy and find that method, but you'll still have access to it. And then you obviously we know how alias method chain, uh, how that sort of thing can can sort of over time uh, devolve into a real mess, right? So one of the things that I, I think are interesting about aliases is identifying which which methods are aliased. I think Ruby needs better tools for that. And also where we keep consistency. If some, if we're gonna make something it's almost like we're we're creating this duct typing on modules sort of thing where I have this concept of comparable or enumerable and then I want to override in a in a way and say well it's kind of like an enumerable because it responds to find and that's kind of doing something that we call find in here you know what I mean and we start layering those concepts and I think that that complexity then maybe gets blamed on alias where it's a question of have we have we taken a concept that was established in Ruby like find on an enumerable and then decided we wanted to layer a different concept on top of that and is that where the complexity comes from? That's a good point. The um, the alias copying thing is actually a good thing I think because that's actually what makes things like alias method chain possible in that you can copy the method somewhere else and then write a new version of that method that refers to the copy, right? So you can still get the old behavior, but modify it in a kind of wraparound filter kind of way, sort of. So uh, I, I, I would say that I, I'm pretty pro to Ruby's aliasing feature and don't necessarily consider it a minus, but I can definitely see why, you know, people ask things like, well, which one do I use, length or size? And, you know, the answer is it doesn't matter, you know. That's it. It, unless you're an active record. That's so, right. so that, it changes that <laughs> and then it does matter. That's right. 
<laughs> right. So, so, so if you're if I'm aliasing collect in my class, then I want to make sure I'm also aliasing map. That's right. I'm, I mean, not not aliasing. I mean, overriding collect. Then I also want to override map so that my API to my my class is consistent. Okay. Yeah, I think that's the good rule of thumb. And you can just write the one implementation and then use alias method to copy it over, right? So. There you go. <laughs> Yay. So, okay, so, so, so uh, we've been going through my list a little bit. James, I remember when you looked at the list, you said, I hate this list. So what were you thinking about? That's true, I did. When, when uh, Josh brought up this topic, he said he made a list of items that we should talk about. We've talked about two of those now. And I, I looked at the list and I immediately got mad. And uh, I thought that was interesting because um, uh, Dave Thomas has these uh, great examples he'll show in his talks sometimes uh, where like Ruby becomes particularly picky about syntax. And he has a great one with uh, regular expressions. And uh, he'll show it as just like um, A slash B slash C, you know, kind of thing, and say, what does Ruby consider this? Is this division or a regular expression or whatever? Actually, it's more interesting if you take the three letters M slash N slash O because of uh, O being a regex modifier, meaning compile once. So, um, anyways, he'll show these very different examples of and he'll like put a space in there and all of a sudden Ruby treats it totally differently and he'll put another space in there and Ruby treats it differently again, turning it from like regex into division. Some of them are syntax errors where Ruby just throws up its hands and refuses to interpret it at all. It's very interesting because uh, uh, Dave's point is that, um, you know, we always say we hate white space sensitive languages, but there are scenarios where Ruby is white space sensitive, you know, and it'll change the meaning of your program or whatever. But Dave says, and, and I've always felt this way, that Ruby does this to try to be more helpful to us, to try to, to try to talk more like we do and less like a computer does, right? To try to be more friendly to our way of expressing things. Usually when we divide two things, we'll, we'll put spaces around it or whatever. So Ruby will use that rule to say, they're probably dividing here and not using a regular expression or whatever. And, and that's a, I think that's interesting, and so I've always liked it that Ruby's grammar is complicated and horrible because it's got edge cases. It's a lot like English, right? English is complicated and horrible, you know, and Ruby's grammar is kind of the same way. But I bet Brian has a very different opinion on that. Actually, I I love I love Ruby, um, and I I find that the the things in, like like you're mentioning here, where the the trailing slash oh yeah, that's that's. That's, a, I think, a thing that a lot of people don't even learn about regular expressions early on. You have these modifier flags that can follow that trailing um, closing, uh, you know, character. Um, and then, you know, Ruby has these other complex, I think they're rather complex, uh, ways to introduce things like a, a literal regular expression or a literal uh, quoted uh, array of strings, that sort of thing. And Josh, Josh even um, proposed a, a, a great one that, that you can use a percent, uh, I think, capital S and then uh, and then uh, bookends, whatever you want to use for bookends, and then basically get an array of symbols out of that. I've, you know, I've, I've dug around in the parser uh, a whole bunch. Uh, we, we extracted MRI's, uh, Matz's Ruby's, uh, Ruby implementations parser into uh, Thing that we call Melbourne in Rubinius, and uh, I've been working with the one nine grammar a ton recently, and it is complex. It's, it's a very complex grammar. It's got a lot of state that um, the lexer, the the part that's breaking up the the, the string of characters into into uh, you know words in the language. Uh, it's got a lot of state that goes between that and the the parser itself, the part that's figuring out that when you say, you know, foo, and then an identifier, and then a curly brace, uh, that you're sending, a, you know, attaching a block to that identifier and not doing a hash literal, these sort of things that we, we typically don't think about 
And I think the reason for that is, James, exactly what you said, that Ruby tries to be a more humane language and uh, more in the realm of people talking about things. And we are fantastically good at disambiguating things. All around us, there's tons of stimuli constantly, words and uh, facial expressions from people and body language and the uh, phrases that they're saying. that we are constantly figuring out the right meaning for those things. And I, I find that a lot of Ruby code that I read, I have far less trouble understanding it than, uh, than other languages. And I, partially that's because I spend a lot of time in it, but also I think I'm very sensitive to how much effort my brain is kind of trying to put into decoding symbols and stuff and I mean for instance PHP because of the different symbols that are used in the code I spend a lot more time tracking each individual uh, identifier you know trying to figure out that dollar sign one dollar sign okay identifier I need to know what that means versus dollar sign dollar sign identifier and this sort of thing so I'm a huge fan of Ruby's more complex grammar I think that sums it up so I, I realize I didn't actually answer Josh's question and, and talk about the things I'm uh, not a fan of in Ruby. I, I think if I had to pick my, my two uh, things, I, w- I would first attack our documentation. Uh, we, are, we are bad <laughs> about that, and I've personally spent energy trying to make it better. Although I have, I have learned something uh, messing with Ruby's documentation, so I should probably mention that. But um, we... Like our API documentation is usually what's atrocious, uh, that we tend just not to do that. And people end up just looking at the code because it's easier to read the code than than figure it out from the terrible API documentation. But um, we do have other kinds of documentation that I think are just fantastic. Like our, our blogosphere and stuff like that is so strong. You know, if you read things like, Avdi's blog and stuff, you can a lot of times get really in-depth into concepts of Ruby and stuff like that. And and so I find that side very good, uh, but our, our API documentation very bad. And I, I'm becoming less convinced of the import of API documentation, at least at certain levels of learning. So I think uh, really documentation in general is due for a uh, a breakthrough that we're going to find a better way to do it at some point. But uh, I, I would say Ruby is generally bad at that. Can, can I stop you real quick, James? Because sure, yeah, I have a couple right. of questions about that. First off, you know, people are writing the documentation. So I'm wondering if the poor documentation or poor level of documentation, is, is that the fault of the language? Is it the fault of the tools that they're using to write the documentation? Or is it the fault of the people? Is it kind of a combination of the three? Is there something I'm missing? I think it's a really good question. I would love to know where it comes from because other communities do this better than we do. Like, I mean, if you look in, in the Java community, it's it's a standard practice to have good and complete documentation in the Java community. And that's not true in our community. And if I were to take a guess, and this is me totally guessing, uh, but in Ruby's early days, there were language barrier problems, right? Because you had the Japan side and the English side. And I think that led to poor documentation in the beginning. And then that we kind of took it as a lead by example from there. So I think because we started off on the wrong foot on documentation, then we just kind of stayed on the wrong foot. But I admit, I'm totally guessing. So we'll, so we'll blame it on Dave Thomas then. <laughs> Actually, I love that guy. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can blame you can blame Ardoc on Dave Thomas, but I don't think right. That, right. No, the, the, the no, no. I I think that there may be something to that, James. But I think that there's also uh, you can't really compare Java and Ruby. They're apples and oranges because when someone sh- ships you a Java library, it's a bunch of compiled class files. True. When you when you grab a Ruby gem. You can always just open it up and look at the source code for it and see how it works. So, so you're making the case that Java has the documentation because it's by necessity. You, you need it because you can't look at the code itself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in a lot of cases with Ruby, you don't actually need documentation. It's actually really easy to just look at the code and see how it works. That's true. I've seen people document uh, methods that are basically just like one assignment or something. And you're sitting there going... So 
you know, the, the documentation is longer than the method. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and it's something so simple that it, it, it's more expressive in code than it ever will be in English. I think that you guys are bringing up a good point. And for us, that doesn't matter. Like, if I'm working on a project and I want to see how some Rails plugin works, then I do a gem unpack, dump it in a directory, and go read the source. And that's true. It, I don't have a problem doing that. And it's very easy. However, I think it's important to realize that the activities like that are extremely hostile to new programmers. That's oh, true. I, I agree with you completely. I'm, I'm just saying that... For, for experienced programmers and a lot of the early adopters for Ruby were, you know, they were, they were early adopters. They were, uh, they, were, they were doing that because they were, you know, cutting edge kind of people. So they were up to just reading the source code. And maybe there was some language barrier uh, that was involved in how that, uh, how that arose. But the nature of Ruby has meant that it's possible to, to, I mean, the community has made a huge amount of, of progress and grown, and people have been using Ruby libraries pretty well for years, even with what we might consider to be inadequate documentation, just because they can't open up the Ruby source files and look at things. Yeah. Now, uh, we could rat hole this for an entire episode, so I'm going to give it back to James so that he can go on on whatever else he was going to say. So that the other complaint I've had about Ruby in the past has definitely been speed. And I definitely want to qualify that because um, I'm not a, a big person that thinks that, you know, Ruby needs to be as fast as C. You know, I, I don't have any illusions like that. But um, And I, I often believe most of the time that in speed, it's actually an architecture change that gets you the boost that matters. You know, switching to an algorithm that does it more efficiently or, or switching to a multi-processing model that allows you to do more work at once. I think you'll always get better bang for your buck out of something like that than actually doing, uh, you know, uh, hoping that Ruby's inject method is fast enough, you know. Um, but uh, so I, I definitely, but at the same time, I felt like older versions of Ruby were, you know, uh, unnecessarily slow, you know, that, that when I did call inject, it took, it took more time than it needed to, you know, based on the, the level of difficulty in that, uh, and stuff. And, uh, but I will say that between the, the new VMs and stuff, uh, Ruby one nine, uh, Rubinius and J Ruby, I feel that pain a lot less. So, uh, we've come forward, I think quite a bit. And, and I, I don't really view it as a, as a major minus that I once did, but I, I definitely would like to see us to continually improve in that area as much as we can, you know, recognizing that Ruby is a very difficult language to optimize, I'm assuming. Right, Brian? It can be a difficult language to optimize, um, but the, there's also been, uh, the, the challenge has been sort of essentially the architecture of um, of uh, MRI before 1.9. So we've known about bytecode virtual machines for a long time, and we know that they're a great deal uh, more efficient and faster than something that's just interpreting um, the abstract syntax tree of the, the grammar. So in, in some respects, James, I think your, your, your point is spot on. Ruby has lacked in the sophistication of the technology that we're pairing with the sophistication of the language. So our garbage collector uh, story has not been the best. Our, our uh, virtual machine story has not been the best. And our concurrency story has not been the best. You know, uh, These are all things that are being improved. Uh, Ruby 1.9 is making huge strides forward in, in terms of speed. And uh, there's a lot of attention to the garbage collector now. Uh, Rubinius from the start was the idea of, you know, saying, okay, if we can get, uh, this is a quote from Evan, or a summary of what Evan often says. He's like, if we could get Ruby technology to where Smalltalk uh, was, you know, a decade ago or 15 years ago, we would be light years ahead. So, um, you know, and then the, the JVM, you know, is a very complex project and the complex language surrounding it. And, uh, and I think is corporate issues with Oracle and stuff like that that make me very uncomfortable. But um, it's also a platform that has seen a tremendous amount of uh, attention in terms of technology. So yeah, so JRuby is, is, is definitely in concurrence to garbage collection and, uh, and uh, just-in-time compilers generating machine code is, is taking 
taking Ruby 4. Rubinius, you know, Rub the, the whole goal of Rubinius is basically to make all those things directly available to Ruby. So I, I think it is a it has been a problem with Ruby. It's something that I think uh, that we are addressing. It's I think it's beyond uh, past time that we address it. But I don't think that it's going to be one of the things that, that detract uh, from from Ruby in the future. Do we have two minutes just to address a little of the ecosystem stuff? Sure. I guess. So, so one, of the, one of the things that uh, I used to hear a lot about Ruby was that, oh, it's a, it's a great little language, but there's really no library support for doing system programming. <laughs> I sat down with um, Wayne Seguin yesterday, and he was showing off his, his SM framework. The BDSM project, and you know, we we were just chatting for a few minutes, and he's like, "I got to show you something cool," and he was showing it off to me. And I used to be a sysadmin, so I mean, five minutes in, I'm sitting there going, "Oh my gosh, dude, where was this ten years ago?" You know, when I was sysadmining, because it would have just saved a ton of time and trouble. Uh, you could have actually written shell scripts that made sense, and stuff like that, and you know. So I'm not just talking about shell scripting, but you know that's an important part of it. The, I'm, I'm talking about things like uh, you know interfacing to low-level system services, network programming, uh, you know dealing with process management, you know, you know the kind of things that you typically program in shell scripts, and that you can or uh, you know, hardcore math programming, what what have you. There's a lot of things that the Python guys say. Oh, look, this is great about Python, and and then one of the big reasons that people go with JRuby is because there's all these JVM libraries that you right. can do pretty amazing stuff with. And and you know, if I'm if I'm being fair about this, I got to say Ruby is actually relatively weak in that area. Yeah, that's interesting. I um. So I do a little bit of system programming, and I I, I find Ruby uh, does pretty good in a POSIX environment, you know, where I can fork processes and exec them into something else and stuff like that, and I, I really like that, uh, and I use those features a lot. Um, I, I, you know, I, I guess I tend, when I want to, you know, mess with process tables and stuff like that, I tend to just go the Unix way anyway, you know, read from, uh, you know, uh, the proper device to get the information I want or stuff like that. But I, I think I can understand what you're saying about, you know, it, I've often felt like, you know, that I've had to, uh, you know, dance around a way to kill the exact right process I wanted to kill because I didn't start it and, or whatever, you know, and I, I have felt that sometimes. So I, I guess I can see where those libraries would come in. But James, I, I remember listening to a podcast that you did a while back about um, how you did process monitoring in Ruby and just how ridiculously complicated it was that, you know, it took you a very long time to describe how, you know, all the hoops that you had to jump through to have a sentinel process around watching the other processes. And, and, and that, that seems like that's a problem that got solved a, a while ago in just regular system programming. Yeah, so, that's probably I, a good point. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it's it seems like it's a very complex problem that is not really solved. I mean, if you look at the complexity of something like um, Unicorn, I think that does you know like zero downtime deploys and stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff that's required to do that. So I'm not surprised that's hard in Ruby. And I would I would just point out that one of the things about the lang you know languages uh, a language's libraries and stuff, if the language isn't up to the um, the, the task of executing some library code fast enough, people tend to drop down to another language. So C has been the go-to language for Ruby. And way before rubygems.org and way before RubyGems actually was a big deal, there was something called Ruby Application Archive, which is still out there. And there's probably something like 45,000, I think, different libraries on there. A good portion of those are C uh, bindings to C libraries. I think Ruby has a ton of libraries available to it. The question is, is whether or not I, I think whether or not they reduce the complexity of what you're trying to do enough, or whether or not they throw just this big chunk of C in your in your road. And so, if you 
don't know C and the library doesn't function, can you get past it? But I think Ruby is not particularly poor on uh, on libraries. There's bindings to all kinds of crazy stuff out there. And if someone, you know, if people really want to do more numeric processing, it's very easy to hook something up like GNU Scientific Library to Ruby. It's really easy to do that. Probably easier to do it than it is with, uh, with Python because we have a, a, a better interface to the garbage counter than reference count, for instance. So I think it's fairly strong. I think it, I think if people want to see more libraries, we need to we need to like convince people that it's something they can actually accomplish. Write a library in Ruby, and it'll perform well enough. Right. I um, okay. I agree with Brian that uh, I'm old enough to remember the RAA and have used it a lot. And there's some gems on there people still don't use enough. Um, a few of them, I believe, have even been brought forward to the. One nine era. Uh, one of my personal favorites is NRA. So if you do need to do some very fast math, uh, NRA basically lets you borrow C's number uh, numbers, and so you can do wicked fast math, a bunch of a whole bunch of numbers at once. So uh, that's a cool library. Another one I love is RB Tree. That one may even be on GitHub now. NRA might be too, um, but RB Tree is a red black tree, a binary tree. Uh, which can be like a hash, but with really great uh, lookup times if you know that, uh, you know, how you're going to uh, structure them so they'll stay in an ordered way and you can order through them and the ordering doesn't necessarily have to be insertion order like it is with uh, Ruby 1.9's hash. So uh, RB tree is another great one I love. But uh, yeah, I, I think we do have some tools. I, I have heard the complaints about... Uh, the science and math libraries being pretty weak from time to time. I think that kind of represents a little bit of a difference in the Ruby mindset, though. A lot of times we'll just shell out and pipe it into some command line tool, whereas, you know, a lot of, you know, Java programmers would prefer to have the whole thing happen in the JVM and just and get all that. But Rubyists aren't afraid to package up some data and throw it down a pipe, you know, I think is kind of a difference. Nice. So we can, uh, we can disambiguate and alias our math data and pipe it off to doing some picks now. That's right. That was awful. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm satisfied. <laughs> well, with that, I think we're going to have to move on to our picks if we're going to stay on track with time. Since you're satisfied, we'll let you go ahead and do the first pick or picks. Okay, cool. Um, so... Uh, my first pick is uh, a blog post, um, and it's about stand-up meetings. So I think that uh, that a lot of, of Rubyists are uh, prone to uh, agile development, and we use extreme programming practices, and one of those practices is a daily stand-up meeting. Uh, and yet there's a lot of, of us who... Uh, don't really have any kind of training in how this works. People think doing a morning stand-up is just, you know, standing up and talking about whatever. And and sometimes these meetings can devolve into um, meetings rather than, you know, what a stand-up is really meant to be. So I, f I saw a uh, an update recently of one of the canonical descriptions of stand-up meetings. It's by Jason Yip. He's a thought worker. And he uh, he wrote this a while back, but he just updated it for uh, f with some new material and better descriptions. Uh, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's on Martin Fowler's website, and uh, it's it's a very long, it's a surprisingly long blog post to, because stand-ups are just these quick little things. But there's there's a lot of material in this post, and the thing that I like about it is that it. Uh, talks about the different ways that you can do things. It's not, this is a one-size-fits-all process. It's, oh, you, you have a small team, here's how you do it. You have a larger team, here's how you do it. Oh, you have all the stakeholders present, here's what you want to do. Oh, you don't, have, you don't have all the stakeholders present, here's a way to deal with that. So it's, it's a really great read if you're doing morning stand-ups and you don't feel like you're getting the most out of them. Uh, this is definitely something worth reading. So, so And then my other pick... Um, is uh, Office Toys. Uh, so I just ordered something from officeplayground.com, and uh, it's a water-filled bouncy ball full of flashing LED lights and glitter, and it's you know, oh you know, God, amazingly awesome. entrancing. Yeah, it's great. I think <laughs> so, my kids would like that. 
It's great. So, so I looked around and I found officeplayground.com and they were the only place that had these things. A friend of mine gave me one of these and I thought it was so great I needed to buy more. Um, so, so Office Playground is good for like fidgety little things. Um, and then the other site that I really like for these kind of things is thinkgeek.com. Which in their geek toys section, and they have just some really incredible stuff like uh, you know push pins shaped like ninja stars that have been embedded in your bar in your uh, corkboard, after science <laughs> coffee mugs. <laughs> so, um, and they and they're of course the place that came up with the um, with the child sized uh, eviscerated tauntaun sleeping bag. Geek <laughs> is also awesome. If you're a parent, check out their kids section. I buy my kid like tons of stuff off of there. Yeah. So, so the, uh, anyway, I, 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 I think you, you, you pretty much can never have enough fun, distracting things in your office. So, I have a feeling I'm going to wind up buying stuff off of Think Geek for my kids, and my wife's going to look at me. What? What is this? <laughs> so, okay. So that's it for me today. All right. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, James. What are your picks? So I think I'm going to make an unusual pick and probably not popular. Let's see if I can get hate mail for this one. But uh, since um, Rails... No! Oh, sorry. (laughs) Since Rails 3.1 was released last night, I thought I would go ahead and make a pick uh, for Rails 3.0, not 3.1. And while I'm at it, why don't I go ahead and throw in a pick for Snow Leopard? And all I'm really saying here is, like, a long time ago, I used to be definitely the bleeding edge guy who always updated the second something was released. I mean, Apple announced, you know, a new operating system. I ordered it that second and, you know, installed it. And while it was always cool to play with the new shiny, uh, you know, you always run into things that like break immediately, you know, and you have to wait on people to get the updates out and stuff like that. And then eventually you get back to where you get a great working system and stuff. So, I've actually, at Herculean effort, been resisting, like, the upgrade to Lion because I have two pieces of software that aren't yet compatible with it. But, you know, in both cases, they're working on it and should be out soon. And then uh, and then the upgrade to Rails 3.1, I, I was looking at it last night. And it's like, yeah, and then I'm going to have to change all the asset stuff and this one app and stuff and it's working just fine and the asset stuff doesn't really buy me anything i haven't already figured out you know how to handle so anyways i kind of resisted upgrading an app that i'm currently working on to uh, rails 3.1 and i'm not saying don't upgrade of course i still love playing with new tech and all that i'm just saying you don't have to upgrade the day something comes out and if you choose to wait a little bit, then uh, it's uh, a more pleasant experience in that you can slide up when your stuff already works there and things like that. So I'm I'm recommending we try, although I, I realize it's horribly hard, to, you know, not being the very first person to use a piece of technology. <laughs> that, that is awesome, James. <laughs> I, so I, I worked at Apple a while ago. And uh, the the QA team that I worked with had some letterhead, some email letterhead that they would use that said, Apple computer, where quality is job 1.1.1. One, point one, point one. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> right. Oh, man. So, James, the anti-fanboy... I'm trying it. It's it's my new my new strategy. But you know what? Like everybody got lying, and some people were like complaining on Twitter, and I'm like, you know, it's still working for me, fine. And Apple's not going to cancel support for Snow Leopard, you know, in the next thirty days or something. I've got a little time, you know. It's funny because about a week before they released Lion. I had Snow Leopard crash on me like three times. And then the week after they released Lion, it crashed on me another two times. And I'm like, screw this. I, I, it can't be any worse going to Lion. And I've upgraded and hadn't had any problems. So, Oh, that's good. But anyway, um, Brian. I got to go say, I oh. say I'm really excited about the upcoming Rails 3.1 release. It's out, Josh. Haven't that you happened seen? Yet. That happened yesterday. No, the three one one. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, you and James are our skeptics. All right, go ahead, Brian. I, I have a couple of uh, uh, things. One is, um, 
people are going to learn about uh, a concurrency mechanism called actors, and I think it's fantastic. It's it's quite a bit. Uh, it's it's old. It's it's been around for a long time. Some great research has been done on it. And uh, there is a guy who's got a terrific blog called "It's Actors All the Way Down," where he covers a lot of the the, the simple patterns in uh, in using actors. Rubinius has had an actor implementation. Um, from Mental Guy uh, and Tony Ossieri since I think 2007. So, so within the I think within the first year, but it hasn't gotten the attention that I think that it deserves in the Ruby community. Um, another guy, Mike Perm, has written a, a thing called Girl Friday for doing background processing that also uses actors. And uh, in Rubinius, you we've removed the Gill and 2.0, and we're really excited to have full Ruby concurrency. And that can be a wonderful thing or a huge can of worms. And I hope that people aren't going to take um, take this and necessarily go the full thread and uh, and locking route. I think that there's better things for us to use. So here's a this. Uh, I guess we'll have the the link in the whatever people can access. Uh, is a blog though uh, from a guy who's written an entire language uh, around the concept of actors. So it's gonna it's gonna broaden your mind a little bit. The other thing that I think is really fascinating. That Ruby is an object-oriented language, and we we sometimes think everything about being object-oriented means everything is sending messages to objects. And I want to introduce the idea that there's there's actually some stuff in Ruby, reflection methods like respond to and instance methods and things like this that can be used in code to make things more complicated than they need to be actually, and actually destroy some of the object-orientedness of code. I can't tell you how much it frustrates me to see code that says if respond to call this method. I think that's a terrible perversion of the idea of sending messages to objects and letting them figure it out. So my other pick is uh, actually a blog post about a concept called mirrors. And uh, you can you can Google for mirrors and you'll find Gilad Brock's um, paper on it. But this is from Alan Worf's Brock. And it's a it's a, a couple of blog posts and about using mirrors in JavaScript for reflection. Basically, the idea of a mirror is an object that takes on the responsibility of providing you reflection information about an object rather than requiring the object to tell you directly. So he's done a couple of posts. I'm going to link to his first post. Uh, this mirrors uh, idea is something that we're really really interested in exploring in Rubinius, figuring out how we can actually make. Uh, a better separation between logic in your programs and, and object-oriented structure and things like understanding how your program is behaving, how the code is behaving, and how the objects are behaving. So those are my picks. All right. Brian, kind of along your last one, it's always bothered me that a uh, caller in Ruby returns an array of strings and then I have to parse it out to find the file and the line and all that, you know. I've always thought it should return an array of objects, you know, of uh, that, you know, I could call line on or file on or whatever. I absolutely agree. And uh, in Rubinius, our backtrace is actually an array of objects and we provide... Uh, an MRI compatible array of strings, but you can, instead of using caller, you can use the VM facility directly and get back this array of location objects and you can find out a lot of information about it. So I absolutely agree. I would love to see that aspect of Ruby objectified properly. Awesome. All right. I guess it's my turn. Um, I've been trying to think of what my picks would be and I, <laughs> I'm kind of drawing a blank. Um, I was on the road for most of the day yesterday and, you know, got, got into Boulder last night. Um, so your pick is Boulder, Colorado? Uh, sure, I've seen about six blocks of it, other than what I saw driving in. Um, I, guess, I guess my couple of picks, um, one thing that's been really nice um, on the way out here is having my iPad and having the Netflix app on it. Um, it just helps me relax when I can just kind of hang out, you know, lay on the hotel bed, prop the iPad up and just watch a show. And, um, you know, so, so I guess, I guess those are my picks are the, the iPad and the Netflix app for the iPad. Um, you know, just the streaming content, there's a ton of it. It's awesome. So you just hook into the hotel Wi-Fi and, and, and watch. 
Um, and one other pick that I usually use on, on trips like this is Skype. Um, and not just for recording episodes like this, but actually um, it's nice to do the video chats with my kids, my wife, you know, just see them and, you know, my kids get all excited and say things like, Daddy, you're on the computer. And, you know, they, they're, they're amazed that they can see me on the computer. But uh, anyway, um, so those are my picks. And, uh, you know, they, they make these conference trips a whole lot easier. So um, so we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I just want to thank our panelists again for coming on to the show. Um, once again, our panelists are Brian Ford. If you want, thank you, everybody. It was a, gr- a pleasure to be here, and uh, I really appreciate the invite. You are most welcome. We also have James Edward Gray. Thanks for coming, Brian, and thanks for everything you do on Rubinius for us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Josh Susser. Hey, yeah, it was a good time as always. Although I got to say, I really miss having David on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know where he is today, but we'll track him down. Yeah. And I'm Charles Maxwood. Um, a few things that you may want to know, the show notes are at rubyrogues.com. That's R-U-B-Y-R-O-G-U-E-S.com. Um, you can also find us in iTunes. And if you look us up and you like the show, then uh, leave us a review and let us know what you think. Um, you can also uh, follow any of us on Twitter. Um, we'll, we'll put links up on the show notes. And, uh, you know, if you have any feedback for the show, then you can, uh, you can tweet to at rubyrogues. And uh, or you can tweet me. I'm cmaxw, and uh, you know we, we do take that into account. And then you know again, if you want to just reach us through any other means, um, most of that information is up on the show notes. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Also, as a reminder, don't forget that the Ruby Rogues is reading Exceptional Ruby by Avdi Graham uh, this month. We are going to discuss it on our. Uh, early September episode. I think it's September 7th or 8th, something like that. Um, So uh, if you want to follow along, get the book, read along with us. You can send in questions to us if you like. Uh, We'll grill Avdi on your behalf. And uh, you can learn about this awesome book that's out in the Ruby community right now. So join us for the book club in September. Bye.